0: the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast fully dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Today, I'm very excited to have Dr. Richard Barnum as our guest. Dr. Barnum is a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist who directed the Boston Juvenile Court Clinic for more than 20 years. In that role, he conducted psychiatric evaluations of thousands of children and families in the Massachusetts courts and also provided counseling services to the Massachusetts Departments of Mental Health and Youth Services regarding cases involving complex legal and clinical problems. He has also consulted with the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division regarding psychiatric care provided to incarcerated juveniles in other states. He was also formerly, formerly an Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and was affiliated with the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Dr. Barnum also contributed a chapter to the fantastic book, Disjointed, edited by Diana Joven, which is called Navigating Psychiatric Misdiagnosis and HEDS because this is such a significant issue in our community. Dr. Barnum, hello, and welcome to the hypermobility happy hour.
1: Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Carrie.
0: Let's start with the basics. You've treated countless patients with connective tissue conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. What do you see as the key issues facing this patient population, and how do you go about treating a patient with EDS?
1: Well, from a psychiatric point of view, EDS patients can have any kind of psychiatric problems, but I've been most impressed in the people that I work with by the high level of intense anxiety they usually have. Um... I do suspect that there's something about EDS that um, contributes directly to um, anxiety symptoms, but aside from that suspicion, there's actually a couple of specific things about EDS that tend to contribute uh, specifically uh, to patients having high anxiety. Uh, The first of these is that uh, the dysautonomia that often comes along with EDS. Contributes directly to problems with increased heart rate, shortness of breath, sweating, upset stomach. All of these are commonly experienced as anxiety symptoms. Um, And they also contribute to patients' feelings of anxiety because they are sort of, um, they generally come out of nowhere and and make people think, well, why am I feeling this way? It's not comfortable. Now, um, the second thing uh, that contributes to high anxiety in EDS patients is I think the social challenges that they routinely experience uh, early on in the course of their illness when they feel sick all the time but can't really explain it, and their families and friends tend to discount the problems that they have and often even blame them for making stuff up. Uh, Once the physical problems become severe enough to lead the patient to medical attention, uh, the problem gets even worse. Um, And I'm constantly amazed by how traumatizing it is for sick people, especially children, to go to doctors and be disregarded and blamed for exaggerating or making things up. I think these experiences contribute to a very fundamental challenge to an individual's sense of efficacy and personal integrity which then fosters all different kinds of compelling insecurities and anxieties going way beyond the specific problems of getting appropriate medical care and contributing to really profound problems with um, general overwhelming anxiety. Now, in addition to high levels of anxiety, EDS patients are also prone to depression and demoralization which is associated often with years of unexplained pain and disordered bodily function, as well as with failed and often infuriating encounters with medical providers. Other problems that are common in people with EDS are so-called brain fog, excessive fatigue, and problems with attention. I don't really understand very much about how these problems develop, but it's pretty clear that they occur disproportionately in people with EDS, And it's likely that they have something to do with the disordered sleep that people with EDS commonly have, which is known as, quote, non-restorative sleep, unquote, in which the usual cycles of REM and non-REM sleep do not occur. Um, When it comes to treatment psychiatrically for these problems, basically the the, the, the treatment is basically the same as anyone else. Um, but I think it needs to happen with greater patience and greater breadth of perspective. Usual psychiatric medications often work just as well for those with EDS as they do for those without it, but sometimes they don't. People with EDS seem in my experience to be slightly more prone to adverse effects of certain medications given for anxiety and depression, uh, effects such as agitation and emotional instability. It may be that people with EDS are more prone to genetic mutations in how drugs are metabolized so that some drugs may be preferred and others avoided, or so that adjustments in drug doses are called for. In my experience, stimulant medications such as Adderall and Ritalin can often be helpful for fatigue or brain fog. But again, those with EDS may be especially prone to adverse events especially increased anxiety and emotional instability when taking these particular drugs. Uh, Sometimes a drug called modafinil, which is uh, the brand name of which is Provigil, uh, can work better than the more traditional stimulant medicines for problems with energy and focus. Obviously, or maybe not obviously, the associated problems with dysautonomia and mass cell activation can really complicate the clinical picture uh, for anyone with psychiatric disorder and may contribute to less robust responses to psychiatric medications than in people without these complications. Now, this all has to do with psychiatric medication. But in thinking about psychotherapeutic approaches, I suppose there's some some tendency to try to disentangle psychotherapeutic approaches from pharmacological approaches. Um, But in the practice of psychiatry, where medicine is uh, routinely involved, I don't really think it's possible to disentangle the, the two kinds of treatment. The fundamental principles, which are patience and breadth of perspective, govern every aspect of the therapeutic relationship, whether the active intervention is understood as medication or as some form of psychotherapy. Psychotherapeutic interventions are also not as simple to characterize and distinguish as our psychiatric drugs, but in general, therapists expect to be helpful in one or more of several different ways. The most simple psychotherapy approach to characterize and the most closely linked to psychopharmacology is the counseling approach that relies simply on giving advice or telling people what to do. In my experience, this is rarely helpful, especially with EDS patients, because nothing is ever simple and I hardly ever feel like I actually know enough about another person's circumstances to be able to expect that just telling them what to do will be useful. Another active form of talk therapy, though less specifically directive, is known as cognitive behavior therapy, or CBT. In this kind of therapy, the patient and therapist work together to identify behaviors or patterns of thinking that the patient would like to change, and the therapist then suggests replacement behaviors or thoughts and tries to help the patient to remember to use them. This is a very specific kind of psychotherapy, usually calling for specialized training. And I don't do this much either, although sometimes I do, especially when um, working with patients who have obscure medical problems and whose obscure medical problems tend to contribute to problems with anxiety and uh, low confidence and low self-esteem because With people like this, um, it can be enormously helpful to uh, help the patient to recognize how a particular destructive pattern of thought um, is something that they've uh, developed as a result of misunderstanding their own medical situation and um, tending to blame themselves for it uh, and to become demoralized by it as a result. Other kinds of talk therapy that are less well defined um, help the patient to explore aspects of their experience, to identify and become familiar with patterns of thought and feelings, to understand the origins and adaptive functions of those experiences, and to become less confused and overwhelmed by them, more able to pursue their goals without undue interference from their own emotions. In any of these therapeutic activities, I think it's most important for the therapist to listen well to what the patient says and to attend empathically to the emotions that the patient manifests non-verbally. In my experience working with people who have EDS, the difficulties they have had in relationships and in self-care tend to have contributed to pretty complicated collections of implicit beliefs about themselves and others along with quite intense and often conflicting emotions. Often it feels to me as if the most valuable help I can provide is to listen to these experiences and feelings and to help the patient to recognize and understand them and not be confused or defeated by them. It is a sad truth that among the most important of these feelings is often the anger and hurt that people experience in response to the lack of understanding of the pain and other physical troubles that have dominated their lives.
0: Thank you so much. That was a great overview. And I think uh, so many of our listeners will relate to what you just said. I certainly do. And um, it sounds so simple in a way to, to listen to patients and, um, you know, some of the things that you suggest, but I think you're right. A lot of us have not experienced um Healthcare providers or those in our lives who really take the time to listen to us, and um, in my experience, uh, talking to other members of this community and in my own personal experience, um, I've certainly noticed how how hurtful and how impactful it can be when when there's doubt when you're expressing your feelings and and how that leads to a complex. Um, set of views about oneself that are not necessarily productive. So I, I really think you have, um, you really have listened and that's demonstrable in what you've said and uh, and that's incredibly impressive. Um, uh, for our next topic, um, uh, of course, we know that HEDS carries with it many physical complications that make life difficult and those issues can lead to or worsen psychiatric issues what are the ways in which a well-informed psychiatrist can help patients with EDS? And what do you see as the ideal role for psychiatrists working with this patient population?
1: Well, in keeping with what I've already said, the ideal role is to listen to what the patient listen to the patient and learn about their experience and help them to understand themselves and their bodies, to recognize what of their experiences stem from physical problems what are more purely emotional. Um, a psychiatrist who actually has experience with these kinds of conditions can usually be helpful um, in uh, informing patients who sort of may know less about um, the general range of these experiences um, uh, and then help them to understand uh, you know what's crazy and what isn't. Um, The ideal role for a psychiatrist is certainly not to help other doctors to convince the patient that their problems are all in their heads and that they should learn to shut up and stop complaining about them. In fact, I feel best about the work I have done with patients when it leads to their having clarity and confidence about what the nature of their troubles is, being able to seek and obtain appropriate and effective medical care, and to recover from the damaging effects of inappropriate and ineffective medical care. Unfortunately, even in a medical Mecca like Boston, I can it can still be very difficult to find and access appropriate medical and surgical care. I'm sorry, surgical care when EDS is involved.
0: I think you're absolutely right about all of that. And again, in my experience with talking with other patients with EDS, and in my own personal experience, um, I've found that that access to care issue is really critically important. And unfortunately, many of us have to travel great distances and end up having to coordinate our own care, which is just very difficult and stressful. And so um, I'm glad that you noted that because I think um, it, it's difficult because we're kind of raised to think that doctors have all the answers. But when it comes to EDS, um, we really need to sometimes be our own advocates. And when we have a gut feeling that something isn't going right, that our issues are not being addressed, um, it can be really helpful to get a second or a third or, you know, many more um, opinions, unfortunately. And then there can be stigma associated with with that as well. Um, but yeah, it certainly is uh, an issue finding access to care, and that really highlights the importance of what you just mentioned, which is, uh, you know, a psychiatrist who's knowledgeable about EDS can really help the patient to tease out, okay, what are my physical symptoms, and then what are my, you know, coping mechanisms, and. Which ones are helpful? Which ones are not helpful? And to empower the patients to 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 be able to advocate in a system where patients are kind of expected to kind of go along with um, what what a doctor tells them. Um, so so thank you so much for that um, summary. Um, and that's,
1: that's certainly the ideal um, <laughs> when it works that way.
0: Mm-hmm. And you've discussed the issue of misdiagnosis in HEDS when it comes to psychiatric conditions at length in the book Disjointed. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about why you think this happens so frequently?
1: Um, mis- why misdiagnosis in EDS happens so frequently? Well, I think the answer to that is simply that. Um, There are very few, in my experience anyway, medical providers, proportionately anyway, to the whole universe of medical providers who actually have any familiarity with EDS at all. Um, And so, you know, that poses a challenge right from the start. Um, Secondly, the symptoms that EDS presents with uh, often affect multiple body systems, um, and specialists in one body symptom system often don't really have much interest in the patient's problems with a different body system, Um, and um, so um, they can sort of get frustrated. It's unfortunately true even when the specialist's assessment and treatment within the body system he's familiar with turns out not to be effective in addressing the patient's problems, uh, which is common enough for people with EDS. In such circumstances, the specialist might say might say something like, well, that didn't work. We're in mysterious territory here and we'll just have to keep plugging away and try to figure out what I'm missing. But it seems to be more common that the specialist will say something else to the patient like either their symptoms don't make any sense or their failure to respond to the recommended treatment doesn't make any sense um, and they'll go on to throw up their hands and give up in puzzlement and basically offer nothing at all in the way of help. Or, which is even worse, they will tell the patient that they are the patient is clearly suffering from some rare and weird mental problem, and they need to get their head examined.
0: Yes, you're, you're absolutely right that that happens all too frequently. And and as you noted earlier, that can be tremendously traumatizing to someone who knows their body and knows that things are going awry. And to be told by an expert, um, you know, that things are in your head when you have that gut feeling that you're not is really difficult. Um, what, what do you think leads to this phenomenon? I, I would think in part the the system being set up so doctors can spend so little time with patients may be a part of this problem that they just feel like they don't have the time to investigate. But do you think Dr. Eagle plays into this to some extent that they, if they can't figure you out in a set amount of time, their ego feels challenged and it's easier to blame the patient? I mean, I guess, do you have thoughts on what kind wait, of... Wait, wait, wait,
1: wait. Are you suggesting that, that doctors uh- Tend to be over invested in their egos. <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing.
0: I'm asking the question.
1: <laughs> oh my God! Uh, well, yes, of course, it can certainly happen that way. Um, mm-hmm. But I really think that it's more that uh, there just isn't enough training in this area. It's not as mm-hmm. though it's not as though these conditions are really all that rare. You know they're not really that terribly rare, and I mean, you know, if they were really rare, I wouldn't be seeing so many of them, um, and you wouldn't know so many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think it's I think it's just a, a lack of training. I don't think that this is a condition that. Um, you know, medical schools are sort of particularly interested in uh, teaching about. I don't think there's enough research in this area. I think that, you know, the fundamental difficulties that um, are um, critical in uh, EDS patients are not well understood, and so, you know, it's it's actually sort of hard to provide training because mm-hmm you know, the way medicine is now, it's supposed to be scientific and evidence-based. And that means that, you know, Mm -hmm. if you want to sort of get time on the medical school curriculum, you have to actually be able to offer um, scientific explanations and things that, um, you know, are um, are hard facts. And, And those just are things that Um, we don't have that much of uh, in dealing with these kinds of problems. So um, as a result, um, you know, the doctors who are getting trained are trained in all kinds of other things. And, you know, there is a tendency for uh, specialists to um, sort of become uh, disengaged with uh, other specialists and with primary care providers and um to sort of become quite preoccupied with uh, the things that they specialize in and that they actually know something about um, and so when somebody comes in uh, with a problem that that doesn't really match what they're expecting it's natural to um, to and it's something that you know they don't really know how to go about making sense of because they don't know enough about the the world of connective tissue problems. Um, mm-hmm. You you know it's natural to become frustrated and give up and um, it's not it's not natural to end up blaming the patient. But you know from a from a from a psychological point of view it's sort of understandable because it's the kind of thing that you know doctors are not used to being. Wrong or helpless or puzzled, and um, and they don't deal well with uncertainty for the most part. So
0: that's a great point, and yeah, it strikes me that, and having known several medical students and doctors personally um, as friends, and having discussed this issue with them, it does sort of strike me that there would be value in. Teaching more, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, bedside manner, or more ability to communicate and listen to patients. Because at the very least, that listening and validation and having someone feel heard out, even if you know the result is the same, I think um, you know patients walk out of an appointment um, with a very different feeling if they have the sense that the doctor that they're working with. Um, actually cares and has actively listened to them and not just given up on them. So I mean, maybe that's a, a small tweak, but I agree. I think long-term we need more research and really a lot more awareness of the systemic nature of this condition. I mean, I can see um, a lot of us patients have sort of paradoxical problems or we don't fit The narrative. Um, You know, I've been told things like, oh, well, your body mass index is fine. So (laughs) are you complaining? And, you know, to me, it's like, well, it turns out there's more to life than that. And actually, that's because I'm very, I don't absorb my nutrients properly. It's not due to any, you know, um, effective diet and exercise, uh, um, particularly exercise, which is uh, very difficult when you are recovering from multiple surgeries. So I think just expanding people's perspective and I mean, giving them more time to work with patients would be helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, we just need more providers who are kind of willing to take the time to get up to speed on this condition that seems in a lot of ways different from the quote unquote average or baseline, which the notion of that always kind of throws me for a loop. Cause I, I don't, I think, you know, there is no average or there's no normal. It's like, we all have our own challenges, but I guess maybe they're more acutely condensed um, in something like EDS, especially given the lack of education about it.
1: Well, I think that, you know, the basic notion that um, doctors need training in listening and um, and in being empathic um, is fundamentally essential for any doctor in any um, particular specialty, and that has nothing to do with, um, you know, whether the condition that they're dealing with is one that we actually know very much about, um, or whether it doesn't. It's just, you know, it's it's a critical um, feature, and and you know, having developing a relationship with patients.
0: Absolutely. Um- so on, on that note, in your practice, what are the conditions that are most often di- misdiagnosed psychiatrically in patients with um, HEDS and broader, just in general, the conditions that you think get mis- misdiagnosed or mislabeled?
1: Yeah, actually, in, in my experience, the, the most common kind of condition that gets uh, missed or misdiagnosed or undiagnosed um, in people with connective tissue problems is uh, sort of any kind of trouble in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, Stomach and bowel problems um, are um, very sensitive to all different kinds of disruptions um, in physiology and and they can really be quite mysterious. And doctors who specialize in these problems um, would ideally have enough familiarity with um, connective tissue problems and the difficulties that go along with them, like mast cell activation problems and dysautonomia and so forth, to be able to include those kinds of diagnoses within their ordinary differential diagnosis and look into them as um, a possible explanation for what patients are suffering from, but it's it's just remarkably common how it's remarkable how uncommon it is that um, that these problems tend to be sort of recognized and included in the workup. Um, anyway, um, what what often happens instead is that. Um, You know, problems of uh, bloating or constipation or abdominal pain and intermittent diarrhea that um, are sort of typical manifestations of dysautonomia and mast cell activation problems um, are just not recognized as coming from those sources. Um, And instead, they're just sort of. Considered to be within the throwaway diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome um, Which you know is not really much of a diagnosis It's actually even less of a reliable diagnosis than EDS is uh, Because it doesn't have any particular um, You know findings other than historical findings and um doesn't have any specific definitive treatment. So it's not worth much. Um, The other kinds of physical things that uh, tend to be misdiagnosed in my experience are breathing problems and dizziness, um, which um, are common results of the uh, autonomic instability that comes along with EDS often. Um, And they're often ascribed to just simple anxiety, sometimes um, breathing troubles can be blamed on asthma uh, inaccurately. And that can be an important mistake because um, one, of the, uh, one of the medicines that's particularly dangerous to give people in asthma is called a beta blocker. Um, And that same kind of medicine can turn out to be a really helpful uh, adjunct to treatment in stabilizing the uh, autonomic dysfunction that tends to happen with EDS. Um, But the area of misdiagnosis that always gets most people upset is uh, when an EDS symptom or combination of symptoms puzzles a doctor so much that they... um, just become frustrated and can't make any sense out of it and will then label the patient with a specific psychiatric diagnosis like, for example, somatic symptom disorder or conversion disorder or any number of another similar labels that um, basically are names for conditions where a patient is thought to be experiencing primarily emotional distress but expressing that distress in some physical form. Often these diagnoses will be offered by non-psychiatric doctors, um, but sometimes psychologists or psychiatrists are part of the teams involved in labeling patients uh, in this way. Uh, And when made incorrectly, these diagnoses can cause patients very serious harm. Um, As I uh, have noted previously, I've seen plenty of patients who've suffered serious emotional trauma as a result of being forced into inappropriate psychiatric treatment based on having such diagnoses. Uh, one girl I knew with EDS uh, had been locked up in a mental hospital for months on the basis of such a diagnosis. Um, oh. And in that context, she was exposed to a lot of violent behavior and had some physical abuse visited on her herself, um, which left her obviously badly damaged psychologically and really unable to trust anyone under much of any circumstances. Another patient of mine um, had multiple medical hospitalizations for neurological symptoms during which her EDS wasn't really recognized or attended to at all. um, And she was threatened with being removed from her parents' care and Then after that hospitalization, she was placed in a specialized program for patients with psychosomatic disorders, and she was then reported repeatedly uh, forced to undergo painful experiences that were part of whatever the sort of obscure treatment program was that they were undertaking in that program, and um, it was supposed to be helpful, but it just made her symptoms worse. and you yourself have talked about uh, a case that you know of in which a patient um, had been diagnosed with a somatic symptom disorder, and as a and and then was later turned away from a hospital emergency room uh, because that was the diagnosis in her record, uh, when in fact she was in the throes of anaphylaxis, um, and that patient ended up dying. So the stakes of these misdiagnoses are really quite compelling, and um, and troublesome.
0: Yeah, it's unbelievable that this continues to happen in 2020, when there is so much, I mean, there is so, at least some knowledge about ehlers Damos. And I mean, I saw something that Hippocrates described hypermobility in 400 BC. And so it strikes me that, well, and Ehlers and Danlos, those researchers were doing research at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. So the fact that this has been um, out there to some degree for quite some time. And yet these horrendous experiences are still happening is just, um, shocking and really disheartening.
1: Well, I think hypocrisy, I (laughs) I think, you know, I'm sorry. I I was going to say, I think Hippocrates was, um, not really getting it anyway. So he (laughs) recognized hypermobility and, uh, and probably just sort of said, well, this is an interesting finding that means nothing. I mean, that's what, Usually happens these days.
0: Yeah, true.
1: Anyway, there are a number of specific diagnoses that um, that fall within this overall category of mislabeling uh, a person with EDS as suffering from a sort of psychological disorder that results in uh, the manifestation of symptoms that are essentially false. Um, And those specific diagnoses are things like Munchausen syndrome, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, factitious disorder, somatoform disorder, somatic symptom disorder, and of course, the ever popular conversion disorder. Um, I could talk about uh, those things specifically at length, but I don't really think there'd be much value in that. So we'll skip over that part. Okay. You'd probably like to know what I think a patient should do if they believe they've been misdiagnosed.
0: Absolutely, yes.
1: All right then. Um, I think the first thing a patient should do, and if they think they've been misdiagnosed, is talk about it with the provider. Um, ask the doctor, "What does this diagnosis mean? I don't understand. What's the basis for it? What implica- What is it going to mean for my treatment and for my progress and my future and And if the answers don't make perfect sense, uh, then immediately find another doctor um, and ideally find a doctor who actually knows something about the area of connective tissue disorders and the associated co-occurring conditions so that um, um, the problem won't continue. Um, Unfortunately, the major problem that that comes up as a result of misdiagnosis is that the patient will continue to be burdened by having bad information in their record, which can interfere with appropriate care and can sometimes be dangerous, as with the examples we already talked about. Um, you made a couple of very sound recommendations in your chapter in Disjointed. Uh, excuse me to address this problem. The first was to establish a reliable relationship with a trustworthy and skilled, accessible doctor who knows the right diagnosis and who is confident enough not to be swayed away from it by other doctors' impressions. Um, It's not so uncommon that other doctors come upon people with uh, EDS under one circumstance or another and are convinced that, um, you know, the patient is a quack and is making stuff up. And, um, um, and, you know, the primary doctor who actually knows the score needs to be able to stand up to doctors like that and protect the patients. Um, in fact, it occurs to me that the first patient that I ever took on who had EDS, I took on, uh, this was like, she was a, an eight or nine-year-old girl at the time. And I took her on for the express purpose of protecting her from uh, this kind of um, bias and misdiagnosis and altered perception. Um, This is the same girl who um, had been hospitalized for multiple neurological concerns. And so the theory in my taking her on as a patient was that if she didn't have her own psychiatrist who was willing to stand up and say, this is what's going on and I'm taking care of it, um, she would be constantly subjected to um, misdiagnoses and uh, intrusive referrals for who knows what kind of bizarre psychological interventions. Um, so anyway, um, the other th- um, that you suggested was to collect records of your own diagnosis and treatment that are accurate. Keep at least a representative sample of these with you so that in the event that you are in an accident or otherwise need emergency care, the information will be accessible for those caring for you. Um, Now, as I've thought about this, um, it's also occurred to me that there might be a role for a medical alert bracelet in um, helping to protect people in this kind of circumstance. Uh, Although I don't really know whether it's something that anybody's explored as possibility, but, you know, if someone has a medical alert bracelet and it identifies them as having diabetes uh, and they're admitted to an emergency room unconscious, um, you know, the first thing that people are going to do is um, give them glucose and hope that uh, it, deals with the hypoglycemia and if, if someone uh, has a medical alert bracelet saying that they have um, mast cell activation disorder and they're admitted to an emergency room unconscious, um, it might be really smart under those circumstances to give them a shot of epinephrine and hope to um, reverse the anaphylaxis. Uh, but I'm just making that up. I don't know whether that actually happens. Um, now, the, the, one of the problem becomes if if you have had this diagnosis, false diagnosis problem and it's gotten into your records, um, there ought to be a way to change it um, because you shouldn't have to suffer from the effects of having false information in your medical record. Um, And um, I don't have a lot of experience in this area, but I do know that uh, it's supposed to be not a hard thing to um, fix errors that are made in your medical record. Um, And there's a lot of information about this on the internet uh, about how to do it. Um, But I also understand that there's, there, the, you know, a lot of this information is probably naively over optimistic and it may well turn out that even with aggressive documentation of, um, you know, alternative diagnoses and correct diagnoses and so forth, that um, one continues to sort of be frustrated in the effort to uh, get their medical record altered and I think that's just a testimony to um, to how pigheaded um, physicians can be. Um, but on the other hand, you know it's it's not necessarily an easy thing to do because what you're what you're trying to convince people of is that no, you don't have something so simple as conversion disorder, which of course everybody understands is completely common and familiar, um, the reality of course is that it's not completely common and familiar. It's probably in reality more rare than EDS, but everybody thinks it's common and familiar. Um, you're trying to convince people that rather than a diagnosis like that, you have a diagnosis that um, that's a little bit more obscure and that they don't understand. and. Um, that, you know, they don't want to accept as part of their medical record. And so other than being persistent and trying to be, you know, as polite about it as possible and being willing to bring in, you know, as much as you can avail yourself of in the way of impressive expertise, I don't really have any suggestions about how you can – Twist the arms of medical record people to get it right?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, it appears to be very much dependent on the institution and then the individual doctors. And um, I've certainly spoken to a lot of people who have struggled with this issue. And um, the only other alternatives that I'm aware of are making complaints to the state medical examining board. And or hiring an attorney to communicate with the hospital to explain the serious implications of these potential misdiagnoses. But um, that can be very time consuming and difficult and is not really a great option. And so well, it seems-
1: it's also pretty damn expensive.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So we really need some systemic change and systemic more awareness and. Um, and unfortunately, as, as many advances have been made recently, which do give me hope, um, it certainly um, continues to dishearten me, um, the state of things, um, you know, in, in this, uh, this day and age where, um, you know, it, one having not experienced these symptoms or these situations would just find them hard to believe because they're, they really are um, tragic and um, should be avoidable. Um, one last uh, question for you, Dr. Barnum, um, you had mentioned, um, uh, on page, I think it's now on page five of our outline, some four situations in your experience. Um, I think you listed them in order of terribleness, um, where, um, there can be, you know, issues involving these misdiagnoses. Would you mind running through those quickly? Because I think a lot of those speak to, um, you know, People that I've spoken to personally, and, and issues that I'm um, aware of in this community.
1: Yeah, that was that was really specifically related to Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which is a um, technically a condition in which um, a child is understood to um, be manifesting a physical symptom that. Uh, is not an actual result of a physical problem, but is instead the result of some activity, uh, noxious activity on the part of a parent. Um, and basically, that that list of four uh, situations um, is can easily be reduced to two. Basically, the the two kinds of situations in which Munchausen syndrome by proxy can show up as a diagnosis is first of all when an anxious or overwhelmed parent um, is uh, sort of not really on top of uh, what can be going on medically with a particular child and the particular problem can be simple or it can be complicated um, but the patient um, tends to get uh, overwhelmed emotionally, and um, is then sort of recognized by providers as being imperfect in some way, and um, and then the um, the child's problem is laid at the feet of the parents' emotional difficulty. Um, that's a very common situation. Um, it's relatively uncommon that that particular situation ends up being labeled Munchausen syndrome by proxy, but it certainly does happen um, frequently enough, um, and, um, and it, 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 it never should happen. Um, the second major area where um, Munchausen syndrome by proxy comes up is in circumstances where a parent has either um, explicitly falsified a medical test uh, by, for example, um, you know, sort of these are, these are real life examples bringing in uh, a baby's diaper that's stained with sheep's blood, for example, and saying that they you know, took this diaper off the child and the child has been bleeding and there's no explanation for it, Um, or um, has been administering uh, some sort of poison to the child in order to generate physical symptoms, in which case the physical symptoms are real, but they are not the result of an actual disorder in the child, they're the result of being poisoned. Um, those those last two circumstances are qualitatively completely different from the first one because they involve actual provable malfeasance on the part of parents, um, and they pose very substantial risk to children. the The, the risk, of course, from um, the, the the poisoning is obvious because poison cannot be not good for people, but the more significant risk for anyone uh, who is involved in a Munchausen syndrome by proxy situation is that the child will be exposed to unnecessary and potentially risky medical procedures, either diagnostic procedures or surgical procedures. Those things can be um, damaging and fatal, and so it's not a good thing. and so it's the, that risk is much less significant in situations where the problem seems simply to be that a parent is emotionally overwhelmed by the difficulties of um, the child's illness. And it's much more significant in situations where the parent has actually falsified a diagnostic test or has administered some sort of poison to a child. Um, so it's important I think I, I mean I think it's terribly important to make this distinction uh, and and really never to raise the issue of Munchausen syndrome by proxy in situations that do not include specific allegations of either falsifying a diagnostic test or administering a poison. I, don't, I just don't think it makes sense to to bring to bear the risks that uh, one one introduces by raising this question, because the risks are enormous. They, they, families are destroyed as a result of um, legal intervention. The, the theory of legal intervention in this situation for, for those who aren't familiar with it is that Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a form of child abuse. In fact, it's, it's known probably better maybe not better, but more appropriately nowadays, as medical child abuse, rather than as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Um, And and because it's child abuse, um, it leads to uh, state intervention and the removal of children from their families and placement in foster homes and, and all kinds of other bad things that can happen. And unless there's a really sound basis for undertaking that kind of intervention, um, it just—it doesn't make sense. I, it's bad.
0: Absolutely, and and just to clarify for our listeners, you obviously work with a very broad patient population that's well beyond just patients with EDS. Um, uh, and it might might be hard to estimate, but in your experience in working with patients with EDS. Um, it, is it your sense that the the former of those two problems is more prevalent where parents are being, parents who are overwhelmed are being, you know, kind of suggested that they're overly involved in their child's care? Um, I, I guess I'm just asking because I've never personally heard of any instances of um, parents with EDS, um, you know, doing those like malicious things, you know, the, the kind of the latter um, see, topic. You
1: no, know, in my experience, it's certainly... Um I haven't, I haven't experienced anything involving patients with EDS that involves either falsifying tests or poisoning, but I have, um, you know, been involved with a number of cases where um, either EDS or some similar obscure uh, disabling physical problem was um, leading to significant difficulty uh, with a child's uh, functioning um, not being able to attend school um, not responding appropriately to medical care uh, and as a result the child then being reported to uh, child abuse authorities and the family being investigated um, and this is I mean there have been famous cases of this um, there was a there was a wildly famous case of a um, a child who had mitochondrial disorder um, five or six years ago in Boston, who was um, not well cared for when she went to the hospital and ultimately was removed from her family and uh, didn't actually get returned to her family for, I don't know, maybe a year. And it was incredibly disorganizing. And, um it's just not something that should ever happen.
0: Yeah, that's just awful. Yeah. Um well, uh, yes, uh, it's just it's heartbreaking to hear of those stories and again, you know, I very much hope that um the awareness be- being brought to these issues like the book Disjointed, um, you know, in which you contributed such a useful chapter. I, I, again, I'll put in my last plug for that um to say go check out the book and particularly Dr. Barnum's um, chapter because it provides such great advice on The ideal therapeutic relationship with um, a a psychiatric specialist, and then where things can go wrong, and how to you know potentially correct those things. Um, So, thank you so much for all you've done to raise awareness of these issues.
1: Can I just make one other comment about this while you're talking about this book?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The
1: the the book is a fabulous effort. Um, It's an amazing collection of. you know, top quality knowledge and understanding of the whole wide range of bad things that can happen with this condition. And it's mostly put, mostly contributed by top experts in the field. Um, and it just is rich with uh, wonderful medical insights. And my contribution um, is trivial by comparison. It's just sort of a little sort of common sense blurb. um, And I would say that your contribution is sort of similar in being a common sense blurb from, you know, the point of view of someone who's actually been there. But my point is that people should not understand that this book is, you know, just a collection of common sense blurbs. It's not. It's an amazing medical resource that I keep on my desk and I'm using all the time.
0: Absolutely. And thanks for pointing that out. Yes, it's incredibly rich and really detailed. And Diana Jovin did just a fantastic job of working with so many busy specialists to give a really round perspective um, to the diagnosis and treatment of this condition. It's a really groundbreaking work. And um it gives me hope that um it'll hopefully get out there to more and more doctors or medical students or even just patients to be empowered to have that knowledge for themselves. And um and so yeah, um I definitely encourage um anyone to check it out um in any way they can or um get their library to purchase a copy um because it really is a very important book. Um I completely agree. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Barnum. Uh, This was a fascinating discussion, um, and we really appreciate you joining the Hypermobility Happy Hour today. And um, I'm sure our listeners will um, get a lot out of it. So um, thanks again. And um, yep, the episode notes and some citations to Dr. Barnum's work will be included in the description of the episode if people want to read more about his book. Um, But starting with Disjointed and actually just reading the whole thing um, is a great place to start.
1: Well, thank you again, Gary, for including me. It's been a pleasure. I hope it's helpful.